I'm Dan Schifrin. And I'm Kathy Joller. And we are the hosts of the podcast series, The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. This program looks at how creative enterprises, culture, relationships, religion, often emerge in the in-between spaces separating artistic genres, say, or between beauty and anxiety, or reality and the virtual world. We are delighted to have with us today artist Deborah Oropalo, whose complex and sometimes disorienting paintings blur artistic lines in novel ways. Visitors to our current exhibition, Houdini, Art and Magic, will recognize two of Deborah Oropalo's paintings, Houdini and The Escape Artist. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you, Dan. Um, when uh, a visitor walks into the gallery upstairs with the Houdini show, the first painting they see is yours, Houdini, and it's a large painting of Houdini wrapped in rope on a chair on his side, struggling to escape. Um, the, the curator of the show said that one reason why she wanted to put it together was because there were so many artists who were um, working with Houdini, reimagining him, and in a way kind of reclaiming him or a version of him for today more as an artist or as performance artist than as a magician or as an escapist. Um, yeah, he's not the rabbit in the hat type of guy, you know. He's yeah. got a, a lot more mystery. And to me, there's something very dark about, you know, all those images. I mean, it's drowning and water torture and straitjackets and shackles. And it's it's kind of like good versus evil. And, you know, that image of him hanging upside down, it reminds me of like when in movies, like the public goes to see some hanging you know, and there's this crowd anticipating something, but, you know, you want to believe that it's going to be good. Um, it's just, it's about transformation and that, and, the, and that sort of... Do you feel a personal affinity as an artist with him as an escape artist? You know, he, he uplifted a lot of people because he was an ordinary person and he, he could do this kind of transcendent thing. And I think a lot of artists relate to the act of transformation, mm -hmm. uh, where an artist is... Or as me as a painter or a writer, you're taking a word on a page or a uh, or a mark, you know, from a material, and you know you're creating this own, your own little supernatural act of, you know, creating feeling where there was no feeling or emotion. It was mm -hmm. just a mark on a page or a word. So I think they share that, you know, in in common. You know, when I go to museums. I like to see, I mean, I think there has to be the equivalent of the magician's puff of smoke that it's anticipated, but also, you know, you're expecting to be surprised. And I think that's one of the beautiful, wonderful elements in looking at great works of art, because it does, it does do that. Yeah, even the act of painting, um, I'm a bit of a painter myself, but I know to people who don't do it, it seems like magic. I mean, it, it's amazing how a form just emerges, you know, and they can't the lack of understanding of the process, much like the lack of understanding of a, how the magician does his trick, kind of um, gives that necessary opacity for you to be to shocked at the end. And um, I know you, now you work with digital tools, and that process maybe is even more opaque to folks. Right. Uh, I, I think that, yeah, they both have to do with sort of illusion and sleight of hand and... Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about your transition to using digital tools? I think part of my change in materials is due to the imagery itself mm -hmm. and in describing whatever it is you're trying to describe. So something that was more, um, you know, if it was water or I think in this case where things are blurred or, or more mystical or, you know, you may paint a certain way. And I think 
even though it's always been photography based, when my imagery started to change and it was away from figurative and it was towards a more industrial, it was more towards objects that it started to go in that direction. And then as I started to take my own photographs, um, not using other people's photographs, it switched again. And then it eventually became digital because I was doing like four color silk screens and when you're doing that at that point you might as well just go to digital you know it, it was sort of going down that path for a long time and so it was easy to make the the leap over I, I still feel like I'm painting in my head when I'm working on the computer still the dialogue because after 20 years of painting I think it just that's how you think yeah even the Houdini work um, with its overlaid text and kind of many layers and I'm I don't know. I'm like, that looks like a blur filter from Photoshop, and it seems like the perfect tool for you, the way you were already thinking with paint. And that, yeah, and that is exactly what I use. The mm. blur tool's my favorite. Ocean <laughs> blur. <laughs> right. You anticipated that the creation. undo <laughs> button. But it does, it is liberating, you know, mm. I, I feel. Are there artists that you feel that you are in conversation with in a profound way, or that you've been in conversation with over the course of your career? You know, I think painting has been the best teacher of painting for me. You know, looking at any painting reveals so much. And, I mean, standing in front of one. And so, you know, you that's always been the most inspiring thing for me. And I think, you know, when I went to school, it was the 80s, when I was in grad school. And so people like Schnabel and Blechner and Sally and... You know, there were just, that was really a big heated painting, you know, moment. And so it was very exciting for me. And all of that painting, if you look at it, was photo-based. I mean, when I was inspired as a little kid, you know, going to the Whitney Museum, and I, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, and I was 13 or something like that, you know. And I so clearly remember those, you know, Rauschenberg paintings and the Jasper Johns show, they had a combination, you know, and you could smell the wet paint, and it was huge, and, you know, it was just incredible. And every show after that that I saw that, whether it's Philip Gustin or, you know, Terry Winters had a show in L.A., and I, ju I just remember going to these different shows and always standing in front of the paintings once again, just feeling like it was so such a powerful medium. Thinking about history for a minute, um, your series, The Guys... At, uh, at the De Young a few years ago, um, you superimposed more contemporary images over um, more traditional images from, I think, the 17th or 18th century. And um, thinking about the conversation between contemporary and historical, and also with Houdini, where you were painting something today or current, you know, in the last 20 years, but that reflects someone who lived 100 years ago. Is there something important to you about that dialogue between historical and contemporary in your work? Well, I think, you know, as a painter, you're, you know, you're always kind of standing on the shoulders of all the other painters that, you know, have come before you. And so for me, the, looking at those 17th century paintings was interesting just because I loved looking at those portraits. And it made me, you know, that project, if I'll call it that, uh, made me look at those paintings again and much closer like in great detail because of what I was doing with them so it was sort of fun for you know a fun foray into that territory for a while although it was a, very much a photographic concept it wasn't about me painting where the work didn't look painted it was just two photographs superimposed you know and they were these kind of sexy online thematic costumes of women in 
similar costumes as the men. Um, and I wanted it to be sort of a, you know, to mix the signals or the radar between the way the men were dressing and all of, you know, all of those portraits uh, were about the man's, you know, wealth and power and all the signifiers around him, whether it was cannons or medals or, you know, it was all over the place. Uh, and yet some quite feminine, like Louis the Fourteenth, or, you know, and so it was, it was sort of fun to switch over the power to these women and almost make them like they were famous women in history that didn't exist, you know, but um, the, obviously the sex was part of the, the power that it was transferred to, and I felt like, why not elevate nurses, maids, and, you know, uh, above the rank and file? And so I had fun with it. You deal a lot with uh, identity in your work, particularly gender. Um, and I just wonder if there's something about working with digital images, which come from an online space where identity is very much kind of up for grabs, ever, you know, redefined, and kind of, that's one of the main digital struggles. It's art, you know can you hold people to being themselves online or is this a place where they're free to reinvent themselves? Um, well, is that at all inspiring in your work? Uh, well, that's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I want to say that just by the search alone, it's sort of a comment on contemporary culture by the sheer number of sites. When those, when I started working with those costumes about eight years ago, there were maybe 600 of the, you know, sexy maid, schoolgirl, nurse, you know, the typical. Uh, now there's over 2,400. And so every year around October, um, you know, there's all, all of these other things are added. And it has made me question, you know, when I saw the very first one, I was looking for stockings online or something, and up pops snow, this sexy Snow White. And I'm thinking, oh, is this you know, some sort of fairy tale fetish or something I don't know about. And then, of course, you go to look for more. And as you go to look for more, it's like asking for a drink of water, but opening a fire hydrant, you know, on the web. And so I began looking at it more clearly. So after the 17th century, after the Guys series, I then decided to do just the fairy tales and take all of those costumes. And that was a body of work called Tailspin. Mm -hmm. And the most current body of work that I'm doing now, which reminds me of the Houdini work, because there are a lot of very similar um, situations, I should say, were the superhero costumes for women. And, you know, and it does raise the question of how are powerful women portrayed or how do you portray women in power and because it's they were a comic book um derived i mean like the advent of superman was at the same time of houdini you know that was jerry siegel came up with this idea and it was for that kind of aching wishfulness of the great depression or the jewish immigrant experience and people wanted something to believe in and some somebody that could do a supernatural act. Well, so I started looking at Wonder Woman and following her back in time uh, when she started. But they really didn't know how to do it. And again, it was the whole question of, I mean, I think I, I think she just got bigger boobs, you know, <laughs> instead of muscles like the supermen did. But of course, they were drawn by men, you know, for years until, you know, and there was a whole comic code about how women could or couldn't be portrayed. So there's been this struggle right up until now, and I kind of followed it through popular culture and through music and rock stars of that where these sort of... Uh, actually, there was a great 
essay by Michael Chabon on it's called the Unitard theory, and it was uh, it was very uh, informative. And so I tracked like the cat woman, the cat suit from 1940s up until the present, and it's kind of interesting to I don't know it just it just sent me down this whole other path. Hmm. So is that current body of work re-envisioning female superheroes or examining? It's taking that web material mm-hmm. of the women who are wearing those costumes or, you know, and, and like I said, like the Houdini stuff, a lot of them are bound in chains or ropes or, you know, they're trying to do some, you know, uh, and, and that I think is what reminded me of it. Um, you know, I only am questioning these things and... I mean, it would have been like the Houdini paintings if you had walked in 20 years ago. So why am I doing these? I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, you find yourself questioning certain things or being just drawn to things as an artist. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of follow your intuition on that and you go to that place. And, you know, I'm suddenly looking at, you know, why am I looking at, you know, Beyonce in a Wonder Woman costume and trying to, (laughs) you know, make sense uh, of what I'm doing. Um, I, I, I've been struck with a lot of your recent work and um, the downloading of images from the internet and the, the transformation of them in some way. And um, there's all these questions about what's real and what's not real um, on the internet. What's a real space and what's a virtual space? Is there uh, an artistic analog in a way to that discussion? Does it mean anything to say a work is virtual or real in terms of artistic process or development? I think I don't see it any different as, you know, before when I was going through these magic books and looking through all these different books on Houdini and looking up information, it's just much easier now. You know, I don't have to look so hard. You know, you can Google. It's like a virtual wish list. So when I'm looking for something, I just ask for it. And, um, you know, for a while when I was photographing myself, when I was doing the photographs, I was looking for things on eBay to photograph if I needed boxing gloves or again. So I would just drum up whatever it was I needed for the painting, order it, photograph it. But then I started thinking, well, why am you know, and then I'd end up with all this stuff that I didn't really want. But I thought, well, why don't I just use their photographs online of the boxing gloves? Because they're trying to sell you something. So it has much more impact. You know, they're trying to create desire and you know, shoot it against a yellow velvet background or whatever, and I'm still shooting things always the same way. So I thought, well, this is much better, you know, to take someone else's. Um, and and then so eventually then it just stopped being my photo, my photography altogether. Uh, and um, they're so, when I use them, it's really more like collage. I mean, they're so cut up and so, there's so many layers, maybe 60 different, layers from photographs that I've cut and piled in layers uh, that it's kind of irrecognizable what the source was. Now, not that's not true of the Guy series, but in the work I'm doing now. I'm fascinated suddenly by um, this idea of you searching obsessively for these strange fetish- fetishistic objects and then Google tracking that and trying to offer what films you would be interested in or something. It's a um, it's a strange kind of um, creation of an alter ego online where you're looking for something in a monomaniacal way and then to see what the algorithm gives you in terms of what, you're, what, you would, what would be associated with you creatively. Um, I'm 
I don't just feel like I want to ask like what 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 are things what are things that come up based on well I mean I wonder because I'm looking at certain I remember doing this other work that had um, images of guns and or it was my son or they were like GI Joe things but I was looking up certain things online because I needed to see what they look like and I thought God if there was anybody looking for a terrorist you know if you looked at who, the sites I was kind of pulling up to get certain imagery whether it was a hand grenade or you know you do, you really just don't know so now that I'm down this territory of these fetishistic costumes or porn or soft porn, you know, whatever, I don't know. I, I feel uncomfortable in some ways that, you know, is somebody going to look at the amount of time I've spent, you know, looking at costumes? Um, and make assumptions. It's somewhere, right? It's, it's being counted somewhere if somebody had to, when the FBI goes in and takes computers, you know, and crime scenes, and then they look up whatever it is, you know. <laughs> Is that your biggest concern? The FBI coming? <laughs> no, but I feel like to some degree, I, um, I always wonder because of the amount that I'm online. And I guess, you know, when I thought about it was with legal concerns, like with copywriting and it's not so much that, but just the copywriting thing and, um, what you're using and the whole free, uh, I mean, I've gone to lectures on it and it is one big gray area, um, they had a, a thing at Cal in the School of Journalism, and I went up to listen to it about fair use. And I remember sitting there and suddenly realizing, like, I was the enemy because everybody was at that lecture going, so people are using my photographs online, and, you know, how do I sue them? That was basically, you know, <laughs> I was the I was that person. <laughs> so um, I think I was, I'm a, I was always a little nervous because of that. See, when I'm online, I keep getting ads like, you know, the new Proust translation trailing me. and Yeah, so would, you're, you're being watched. Yeah, I'd like something <laughs> a little more funky than that. You know, the new James Brown remastered. <laughs> right. James Brown is not following me online. <laughs> That's too bad. Yeah. Right. I was going to say Houdini seems to me a little bit like um, a fairy tale in terms of what you were saying where um, – like in fairy tales, there's the potential of there being grievous harm done usually to a child. And in the end, somehow through some magic, a magic spell or something, they are saved. And um, it goes to Bruno Bettelheim's ideas for mm -hmm. kids to feel the anxiety of being separated or right. dying and yet right. for it to be okay in the end. And when you were talking about Houdini being an inspiration to his generation, you know, before and during the Depression, um, there is that funny um, contradiction between the darkness and the kind of the scenes of torture or drowning that he created as part of his performance, and yet he escaped and he gave inspiration to people, including kind of working class people and immigrants who saw in his transformation into an American from a poor immigrant something of their own hopes right, and dreams. But he had to put them in that place of anxiety for a length of time before he would emerge, you know. And, and again, there's, you know... Um, you know, I think he was a metaphor for a lot of a lot of things for a lot of people at the, at that you know the time he was living. Yeah, it's um, a very I think it's a very very rich sort of territory, and I'm sure that's why artists go there hmm. so often. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, Kathy. It's been good. Thank you.